true. Uh, people, first of all, they see that I am actually quite dogged in my efforts to get this out, as you've intuited from our brief times together. But uh, even if you multiply that by the rest of my life, I'm doing it all the time. And they said, are you tired from this? I said, no, I am charged up in the extreme because I feel absolutely that this is the right thing to do, not only for Spirit Rock. I mean, it's good for Spirit Rock. I mean, we have to replace the buildings. But uh, more than that, we have a very good message. We are really an important source in the world at this point of putting out the message. The message is, never mind Buddhist or not Buddhist, peace is possible in this strife-ridden, war-torn-ridden, hungry, decaying world, planet. Now we have a message. Everybody's texting, let's liberate ourselves from this regime or that regime. That Arab Spring phenomenon has been the most exciting thing for me because I think the whole world has to be texting each other, peace is possible, third noble truth. Peace is possible now, let's do it, let's stop. Uh, let's liberate our own minds from greed, hatred, and delusion. We know how to do that, not we exclusively. Every authentic religious tradition says peace be with you and also with you. We just forgot it as a world. So what if everybody texted each other, peace be with you, and everybody did back, and also with you, and meant it? This is actually, that's what the mission of this place is, not to be a wonderful center to get away to, but to be a wonderful center that changes and transforms the world. And I'm excited about that. So someone told me this great story about generosity. They talked about uh, a certain person, doesn't matter, it could be in any tradition, a certain person who in his community was collecting often for charitable causes. So he had found somebody that he was talking to about this particular valuable cause that he thought should be supported. And as he was talking about it, the person that he was talking to said, uh, and who will be the beneficiary of this generosity? To which he replied, in this moment, you and I are the beneficiaries of your generosity. Uh, the money is going to a third party. And I thought about that, and I thought, that is so true. When I tell you about it, or anybody else, I get completely charged up, because I know that I'm doing the right thing. I feel completely good about this, politically, philosophically. This is the right way to get something done. You get people, grassroots level, to do something. This is it. This feels totally consistent with my politics of my whole entire life and my point of view. So it's good for me. It's good for the person because I'm telling the person, here's a great thing that you can do and feel good about and feel happy that you've done it. So I'm actually doing people I feel a favor. I'm not asking them for anything. I'm giving them the possibility of feeling fantastic. I'm part of a group that's doing a good thing. So in this moment, you and I are both the beneficiaries of this initiative. And someone else is going to get the money. Spirit Rock is going to get built. But that's a side issue. We are already benefiting, so. Okay. That's the real meaning of generosity, that, I think. Okay, now. <laughs> but I, I really wanted to talk about this. I'll tell you why. I want to talk about, if this were the name, of, this will be the name of today's talk when it goes up on Dharma Seed. How do we become wise? I mean, it's a generic title, but I actually mean it quite seriously. How do we learn 
what are wisdom teachings, what are wisdom teachers. And I thought about this for two particular reasons. One is there was a uh, teacher retreat here at Spirit Rock over last weekend uh, for four, four days. There were... Um, 28, 29 teachers, Spirit Rock teachers and other people in our same tradition that are friends of ours teaching in other locations who came. And they spent uh, four days on retreat together, a lot of sitting and walking quietly, but also a lot of talking about um, uh, how their teaching is, what we hope to teach in the future. Uh, and a lot of... Um, guided meditations to evoke certain kinds of conversations. So uh, just on the last morning, Gil, uh, Philip, Philip Moffat led a meditation, which I was enjoying so much, I thought, oh, I'll talk about this on Wednesday. And in that meditation, he had, he had us all sitting together in groups of three, and he said, uh, you know, feel yourself here. And then he said... Um, Feel yourself where you are here in your life as, as who you are and what you know and how you express yourself. And uh, I'm sure all of us are very pleased to be doing what we're doing. And he said, think about all the teachers in your life that you've had and everyone who's taught you and bring them into your mind. And all of a sudden, I thought of this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. Many of them in the tradition, and Jack and Joseph and Sharon, and Usivali and Upandita and uh, you know, all of the usual people, but I thought of other people as well who are part of my spiritual lineage. And all of a sudden I was so picked up with gratitude. Um, so I thought, well, I'd like to bring that up, you know. And then I thought about uh, the fact that if I think about each of my teachers and now is what, uh, if I'm 75 and I started at 41, what does that mean? Let's say 40 to 75, 35 years of practice. And I've been with many of these teachers for long periods of time. I've known Jack for, for 34 years because he taught the first retreat that I was on. And, but I would think there'd be one or two things that that person said to me in, in 30 or 35 years that really changed me. So I want to tell you some of them. And then you can think about who said what to you that changed your life. And I want to precede it by saying something else. And that same day when I was thinking that's what I'm going to talk about Wednesday, I um, learned three different things, not from teachers, that because I and we have been hanging around with these teachings so long, that uh, my sense is that if you look around, the world keeps teaching you because it tells you things. Uh, one of the things that, that happened is it was the... Uh, uh, I was driving over here for Monday mornings all day, meeting with that group because I was sleeping at, here in Marin. I was driving over and it was the aftermath. Uh, it was Monday morning in San Francisco, aftermath of the hurricane sweeping through the East Coast. And uh, KCBS was uh, interviewing people who were stranded at San Francisco airport. So they said, um, 
and whatever, whoever the reporter said, I'm here in San Francisco airport with so-and-so, so-and-so, some woman from New Jersey who is here with her two toddlers um, and her flight has been canceled. I mean, here it was beautiful. And in New Jersey, the storm had passed, but everything was flooded and all the planes had been canceled because they couldn't fly in and the planes were backed up. And uh, the reporter said to her, well, you know, what are you doing? You're stuck here. She said, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, it, this was on Monday. She said, the next flight out I could get was the Saturday night red eye. So it's going to be a little bit of a complication, this woman here. I don't know who she was with. She has these two toddlers. And she said, and tomorrow is the first day of school in New Jersey, and I'm a school teacher. So I'm going to miss the first week of school. And she said, and besides that, my basement is under three feet of water. She said, but then she said, but I can't do anything about it, and it could be worse. So I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if she's a Buddhist meditator or heard of the Buddha or any of that other stuff, you know. But she's a wise young woman. It could be worse. It could be a lot worse. I mean, there could be a really lot worse. And actually, for most things in life, it could be a lot worse. And to have that kind of a flexible mind where you say, well, this is complicated, but it could be a lot worse. And I can't do anything about it. That's the other thing. It does not make any sense to get all agitated about what you can't do anything about. I thought to go, young woman, very nice. As I thought to myself, and I, the listener, am edified at that point because he's a regular person, not a Dharma teacher talking about it. It's a regular person in San Francisco airport talking. So th three different ideas, three examples of how if your ears are open, the Dharma is all around. There isn't anything that isn't the Dharma. So this, so, and so here's this one woman. I think what, what I learned from that, that perspective is everything in life. Perspective, what are you going to hold this in? And the, it's not the end of the world. I can't do anything about it. It's not the worst. What else do, can I know from that story? That life is challenging uh, for everybody. That's the first noble truth that imperative complicates it. She says, I can't do anything about it. So she doesn't have imperative in her mind. I have to get out. Da, 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 da. It's not happening. That peace is a choice. There she is. Peace is possible. It's the third noble truth. Just said the, she just told me the first three of the four noble truths. She didn't say how she got there. The fourth is the path to the cultivation of that kind of wise mind. She didn't say that, but I'll feel you one way or another. Some people are born wise. Some people are born wise. They grow up with wise people. So example number two, also from that same day, was reading Smithsonian Magazine, which I get. It's a very nice magazine. They, they had no end. Of, they never run out of interesting topics. No end. Anyway, did you know, you know who Samuel Morse is? Everybody, everybody knows Samuel Morse. He developed Morse code. He invented the, tel the, the, electro the telegraph, the electromagnetic something. Uh, they called it something else. Um, message machine telegraph and Morse code. Anyway, what I didn't know about Samuel Morse is that he trained to be a painter, an artist. He was an artist. He went to electromagnetic telegraph. That's what it was called. Uh, he went to Paris. He studied there. 
He was very committed to being, uh, to being an artist. Uh, he actually was, I think, quite talented. He has a, a picture of, a, of an oil painting he did of his wife, which it looks actually lovely and actually hangs in some gallery now. says he, he was really um, quite sure that he was going to be recognized as an artist. And then some things happened when he came back. He applied to be one of the artists artists who was going to be given the commission of doing one of the walls in the Capitol building, I think, and he was turned down. And it said that uh, when he was turned down, he took to his bed. Mm -hmm. He said, my life is over, you know, I'm not going to be anything. Sick at heart, he took to bed. Someone said, uh, another, uh, the, uh, one of Samuel Morse's friends, Boston publisher Nathaniel Willis, would recall later that Morris told him he was so tired of his life that had he divine authorization to do so, he would end it. He gave up painting entirely, relinquishing the whole career he had set his heart on since college days. No one could dissuade him. He said, painting has been a smiling mistress to many, but she has been a cruel jilt to me. <laughs> I did not abandon her, she abandoned me. So his father said, well, you could go back to do something you were once interested in. The one thing you were interested in was the telegraph that he'd been working about. Uh, so he didn't have anything else to do. So he developed the telegraph and became actually the toast of Paris and very famous and uh, well-known all over Europe. And, and, and because of him, there was a huge burst of discovery and invention and the whole flowering of telecommunications because he couldn't be an artist. So, so what do you learn from that? You never know. You never know. Something happens. You take to your bed a little bit. You don't say, well, that's it. You know, forget about it. You take to your bed, you grieve, and then at some point you say, well, now I get out of the bed, you know, and do something else. And you don't know. That you think because of this my life is over? Not necessarily. You don't know what's going to happen. Third example. Also the same day. That's probably because I was looking for, for examples. Um, so I was reading in this last edition of the New Yorker. It's the most recent New Yorker. There's a very interesting article about Charles Dickens. And you know that there are... There is every summer a Dickens workshop at UC Santa Cruz. People come from all over the world. Every year there's a different book that's highlighted. And people come, they fill up the dormitories. And they, this year they talked about great expectations. Uh, but their whole band, they didn't finish with talking with it. It was in the uh, 1840s that Dickens was writing. But they don't finish with... Anyway, so a lot of people interested in Dickens. I was reading Dickens's life, which is very interesting. And at one point, he came to the United States for, uh, for a visit. Brought his wife, came. He wanted to see, he said, I wanted to see for myself the democracy and the rugged individualism. And he had some really wonderful ideas about how the you know, this new republic was going to be. Uh, and uh, he later wrote to his publisher, uh, Mr. McCready in, uh, in England. He said, uh, this is not the republic I came to see. He said, this is not the republic of my imagination. 
In Washington, he had watched a congressional budget debate and reported to McCready that American politics were grotesque. And I'm going to read you what he said. This is 1844, 1842. He said, look at the exhausted treasury, the paralyzed government, the unworthy representatives of a free people, the desperate contest between the North and the South, the iron curb and brazen muzzle fastened upon every man who speaks his mind, even in that Republican hall to which Republican men are sent by a Republican people to speak Republican truths, the stabbings, the shootings, the coarse and brutal threatenings exchanged between senators under the very Senate roof, the intrusion of the most pitiful, mean, malicious, creeping, crawling, sneaking party spirit into all transactions of life. So somehow that buoyed up my spirit, you know. That my father used to say, plus ça change, plus ça la même chose, you know, that the more things change, the more they're the same, you know. So somehow, I mean, I don't feel any better about what's going on. But what's the lesson? The lesson is that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And people drunk on power forget what they hoped originally to do. I'm sure that all those people, when they be those people and our people, when they start their political careers, are not thinking, I'm out to ruin this government and paralyze it and mess up everything. They have some sense of what it is to live in a democracy and have uh, get to be an elected official and the, the import of that and the trust that people put into them. And somehow it gets derailed on the way by petty concerns of who's in power and who's going to get elected next. So somehow, I don't know, it should have made me feel worse maybe that we haven't improved ourselves, but that this isn't the worst ever and we're still here. 150 years later, maybe it'll work itself out in some way. I mean, it hasn't so far, but maybe it will. <laughs> so that's what I learned from that, that greed, hatred, and delusion take over if we're not careful. Get drunk on anything. I was thinking, I was teaching about um, the, um, the precepts in, uh, someplace yesterday. doesn't matter in what context. But I was realizing that when I say the five precepts, I say the fifth one as I undertake the precept to really be alert to keeping my mind clear and sane so that I can fulfill all of those other vows that I've taken. Not to hurt, not to exploit, not to... Um, um, not to abuse... Because the first four precepts are not to exploit or uh, abuse or uh, bring harm in any way to anybody. And the fifth precept, which uh, classically says, I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants, which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. In its most original form, it actually meant uh, intoxicants in the sense of fermented drink or some sort of drug that alters the mind. And I think for myself, it has become much more useful um, to, to interpret that in a broad way. Um, there are lots of things that intoxicate my mind that are not um, material things that I, that I eat or drink. Uh, 
too much television intoxicate too much talk shows intoxicate my any talk shows intoxicate my mind. Uh, unjudicious listening to news, like too much, intoxicates my mind. Not balancing the amount of communal time with the amount of contemplative time I have can allow my mind to become confused. I want to put the emphasis on that lead to that 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 um, intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. I want to put the emphasis on what clouds the mind and leads to heedlessness. Sometimes it can be eating too much, not just drinking and uh, uh, a potential intoxicant. I think that there are all kinds of things that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. Gossip, malicious planning, partisanship of any kind. <coughs> so that's what I think about when, and when, when the mind is clouded by greed, hatred, and delusion. We do really terrible things that we wouldn't do with a clear mind. So I wanted to tell you those three because I just read them when I was thinking about who are the teachers I've had. But, and I wanted to preface it by saying, I think the teachings are the world. If we listen, if we got up in the morning and said, if we had the instruction, too bad we won't be together next week. Because you'll forget by three weeks from now, or at least I will. So maybe when I come back, we'll have the homework from one week to the next that everybody will let the world teach them and come in with an example from the newspaper, from the radio, from the this to the that. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Because you could just listen, or you could listen. You could just look, you could just look. So then I thought about actual teachers, and I thought about the thought that I had the other day about who are the teachers in my life. So I, uh, I remember just last week I was telling somebody in some context that um, I grew up in a household with um, a mother and a father, no siblings, and my father's mother, just the way it worked out in those days. My parents married in the Depression. They didn't couldn't live on their own, so they moved into my father's father's, my father's parents' apartment. And they all lived there, and I was born soon after, and my grandfather died soon after. And my grandmother stayed with us forever. Uh, that was not the era of women going off and living independently, and she didn't speak English very well, and she didn't have a career. Her career was taking care of me, because both of my parents had jobs and went to work. So her career was taking care of me, and uh, so I re if I remember my early, the kinds of early things that you remember is who buttoned your dress in the back, and who made the braids in the morning, and who made the lunch, and um, so I spent a lot of time with that grandmother, and she was very, she was devoted to me, actually. I was her only grandchild, and she was absolutely totally devoted to me and totally did everything that I needed for my physical well-being. Cook special foods. The only thing that she was not tremendously um, uh, moved by, anything that hurt me, she would take care of it. If I came and said something like, um, I'm not happy, that didn't impress her very much. <laughs> she would say, 
You have to know this turn of phrase. My grandmother was not literate and not learned, but it is a particular turn of phrase. She would say, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? You know that particular turn of phrase? Yeah. Where is it happy? Where is it written? Who says? Where is it written? So you also grew up in New York with a grandmother who said that. So far. What language did your grandmother say that? Uh, she would speak Yiddish. Yeah, mine also. Okay. You know, when she didn't want us to. My mother. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I actually think that was my first language because I spent so much time with her. But where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? So when I think back now, that's actually the first noble truth. You know, that, that life is complicated, you know. So if I'm going to mark down my spiritual teachers, she gets to be the first one. When I, uh, um, I was 28 years old when I started uh, Hatha Yoga practice. I mean, 29, 30. Um, and uh, I actually, a friend of mine called and said, um, can you get out of work at your lunch hour? There's a yoga class at the JCC in Marin. I'll pick you up, we'll go there, and I'll take you back to work. And my yoga teacher was and remained uh, Maganya Baptiste. Maganya Baptiste is an old woman now. Do you know her? She's in, uh, she's in San Francisco. Her son, Baron Baptiste, is a very famous yoga teacher. I loved Maganya. After the first lesson, uh, I loved Maganya, and I started to follow her around and take classes from her here and there and there and there, and ultimately became a yoga teacher and teaching as well as I could like Maganya. Um, and uh, I loved her, I think. You know, didn't, at the time, I just did it because I thought I needed to be with this woman. And after a while, when I thought back on it in later years, I thought it wasn't the yoga. I mean, I liked the yoga. I enjoyed it very much. But nothing amazing happened. I was only 30 years old, 20. I suppose I could still move, you know. It wasn't that big of a deal. And there wasn't anything amazing happened by doing any particular asana. But there was something about Maganya that I really, really knew that I needed to have. She had a quality about her that I wanted, and I could not have named that. All I just knew is that I needed to be around her, and she happened to be teaching yoga which I later, in later years, when I caught on to what had been the quality and what I wanted, I thought it was a good thing that she was teaching yoga because if she had been teaching long-distance running, I have the wrong body for that. You know, I, you know, I don't think I could have done it. So there was something, and she'd say things in the beginning of do, take a yoga class, and she would say, put your, put your consciousness into your abdomen. I think to myself, that's ridiculous. You know, I can't put your consciousness in your abdomen. But you do it. If someone says, do it, you do it. You know, and you discover, ah, that if you move the attention to your belly, it feels different than if you don't. If I said to you now, move your attention into your right elbow. all of a sudden you feel your right elbow. Are you any more aware of your right elbow 30 seconds ago? Move your attention, you have a right elbow. 
I thought to myself in the beginning, well, this is weird, but I thought to myself, well, you know, as long as I'm here, I'll do it. And for weeks, I would go to class and she'd say something, like imagine yourself to be surrounded, imagine your belly to be surrounded by the color orange. I thought, ah, that's pretty weird. <laughs> but everybody else is lying there apparently doing it. If I'm here, I might as well do it. Then you do it and you feel a certain way. So you feel you're okay, you know. And, but in terms of even using the word consciousness in a sentence other than he was knocked unconscious or, you know, they had an operation, he was unconscious, uh, to use consciousness in another way. Maganya was definitely the first one who said that to me. So she gets on the list. Jack gets on the list, um, partly because I, I met him on the first retreat that I was on and I loved him. Uh, imagine he was 34 years younger, which would make him 32 at, this, at that point. He was a young guy, uh, and I was young. Uh, however old we are, I'm always nine years older than he is. But, uh, <laughs> He said two things to me. Well, first of all, I'd see him for interviews, and I would say, this, that, and the other is happening. And he'd say, it'll pass. Then I'd see him two days later, and I'd say, this, and this is happening. And he'd say, that, it'll pass. Then I think that's the only thing he says, is it'll pass. <laughs> but it's a worthwhile thing to say, you know. It's actually because it will. And it's one of the three characteristics of experience that the Buddha said. You have to know that. Whatever it is, it'll pass. He also said... Um, Someone said once in a group, they said, this is such a dry practice, you know, that somebody wearing some, uh, an outfit that identified her or him, I don't remember, as being part of some religious lineage that was wearing a costume at the time, which could have meant Christian clergy, it could have meant um, Hindu uh, devotee, it could have been follower of... Uh, could have been a follower of different kinds of gurus. Somebody with distinguishing clothing said, uh, where is the bhakti? No dancing, no singing, no praying, no moving, no, uh, no expression of, uh, of chant. And it's very dry to sit here day after day after day. And uh, he thought about it a little bit, Jack, and he said, you know, I think this is the most devotional practice of all. You sit down, you don't do anything, and you say, here I am, God, do whatever you want with me. And I thought, oh. It's good. First of all, it's beautiful. It sounds like the Song of Songs, you know, do whatever you want with me. It's a tremendously erotic line when you think about it. And it's such a good instruction about mindfulness practice. I will be here for whatever comes up, and I'll just be with it. I don't have to change it, or be contentious with it, or coercive with it. That's what mindfulness is. I can respond to it the next moment, but not to make it into a problem, or fight with it while it's happening. It's a great instruction. I went to him once, and I said on another retreat later on, by that time, I'd established myself as a person who was tremendously... When I went on retreat, I had zeal. I would really get up early and stay up late because I couldn't go on very, very long retreats because I had a big family at that time and I had a whole 
professional career life, I couldn't go away for three months. I had to, if I went away for 10 days, I really worked and I knew that I have only these 10 days, I didn't fool around. And on one particular retreat, I felt myself somehow not to have my usual zeal. Not that I was lying in my bed or taking naps. I got up, I sat, I walked, but it just did not feel the usual energy. And I saw him for an interview. And I said, you know, I, um, I don't know what it is. I'm usually so... And on this particular retreat, um, I, I just don't have zeal. And he said, well, maybe this is your retreat not to have zeal. <laughs> and it was so spacious. Because, you know, I thought he'd give me something, tell me, well, you know, buck up, try this, try that. So maybe it's your retreat not to have zeal. And I felt so confirmed. You know, you have to do anything about it. It's your retreat not to have zeal. So I went out of there with such zeal. <laughs> because when you think about it backwards, you realize it's the thought, I don't have zeal, what's the matter with me, I don't have zeal, when's the zeal going to come? Then, then you don't have zeal because you're fatiguing yourself with bad stories about yourself. Say, so maybe it's your time not to have zeal. Finished. So I was interviewing with James once. James started a couple of years before I did. And I was sitting with him. He, he was one of the teachers down in the desert. It was at Yucca Valley. And I was talking about, you know, really being aware of my breath coming and going. And he must have wanted to somehow have me pay more attention or refine the attention. But you know how James is so passionate about something when he says something. And he, and he leaned forward and he said, you know, when the breath comes into your nostrils, really, really pay attention to every single nuance of what happened. I watched him, you know, and I thought, he really means this, you know, <laughs> in his way. So I did it, and my practice changed. It got different. I said, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the instruction, it wasn't about the nostrils, it was about his, really, it was about his conviction that even more attention, even more attention. My teacher and friend, Joseph Goldstein, I was, uh, I was likewise down in the desert on a retreat. And in the first several years of my practice, I'd go on retreat, I'd stay there three weeks, and I'd sit and I'd walk and I'd sit and I'd walk, but maybe I really, really paid attention to the breath. Maybe I really, really planned the next 25 lesson plans for some course I was going to teach. I like sitting quietly. I like going to the desert. I like the food. I like going away from home. So I was not, uh, I wasn't uh, knocking myself out to be sure that my mind did not go off on extraneous thought, uh, thought trips. You know, I'd think through a whole curriculum for a class I was teaching, or I'd think through a whole other thing, and then I'd come back to my breath for a while. But I think about a lot of stuff, and I, I'm, I interest myself by what I think about. I like what I think. You know. So I didn't give myself a bad time, and my teachers didn't give me too bad of a time either. They didn't say anything about what I was or wasn't doing. So I was walking along on a path one day, going from A to B, and here came Joseph walking towards me with someone else, and they were in the middle of a conversation. And just as they passed me, I don't know what the antecedent question that the other person had, antecedent statement of the person walking with him had been, but his response was, well, you know, really, nothing is worth thinking about. And then he walked by. 
<laughs> and here he's my teacher, and I love him, and I'm very, you know, devoted to him. He said, nothing is worth thinking about. I think I'm thinking away. I'm thinking, you know, the whole curriculum for this course, that, how, you know, essays I'm going to write. So I went back to my pillow that afternoon, that very afternoon, and I said, I am not having, I'm not entertaining a single thought. This attention is going to stay with the breath and the body, and that's all. And I sat down, and literally, you know, when people say, I sweated bullets, you know, it actually, you start to sweat. If you really, if you sit there and... You absolutely say the attention is not moving off this experience. And you feel a thought trying to creep in from left field and say, this is what I'm doing. This in and out is what I'm doing. And sat down and not so long passed until my uh, whole inner experience changed enormously. Like that very afternoon, that the mind moves into a whole different level of concentrated awareness, where you're not seduced by those kinds of um, passing by thoughts. If they come, they don't stay. And what happens is they don't stay because your experience becomes so interesting. Because when the mind is really, really settled into another consciousness, into a concentration, it feels different, it feels better, it tingles a little bit, it's warm, it's content, it's spacious, it, uh, it spontaneously has goodwill in it. It's way more interesting than the same reruns of, what, of the lesson plans that I was doing all the time. But he needed to go by. Years later, I told him that story. And you said, nothing is worth thinking about. And he said, you know, I wonder if I didn't mean nothing is worth thinking about. So who knows? But anyway, it changed my life. Okay, two more people, maybe, maybe three, I have to pick up the pace. Uh, Sharon is my uh, loving kindness teacher. So for however long we both live and teach together, because she taught me, she remains my guru in that lineage. Um, and I remember I'd come to see her for interviews. I, w- I was on retreat. She's teaching me the techniques of loving-kindness practice, come in and report and leave and then see her the next day or two days later. And I'd be standing at the door ready to go out after an interview, and she'd say, uh, as I'm leaving, she'd say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I thought that was like, have a good day. It's, you know, in California, we say, have a good day. I thought it was a salutation. And after a while, I realized it's an instruction. It's an instruction. Because I'd be walking around doing walking practice, for instance, and some thought would come in my mind, this and that and the other thing. Tie the mind in a knot, or the mind ties itself in a knot over that thought. And suddenly I'd hear Sharon's voice saying, remember, Sylvia, be happy. I'd think, oh, I'm not... I'm not happy. And then the mind drops its knot and drops the story and recovers its own gracious foundational state, which is content and happy. When I sign books for people, I sign them whatever their name is, you know. Remember Phyllis, be happy. Because I hear her voice, and now people say to me, since you told me that, I hear your voice saying to me, remember, Phyllis, be happy, whatever. So that would be a great transmission. 
time for one more. Well, we'll do Usivali. A lot of people didn't hear of him. Usivali was a, a Sri Lankan monk who I met once, uh, 30 years ago probably. Uh, once again, I was on a retreat down in the desert in Yucca, and uh, he was somehow in the United States. Uh, he was based in Sri Lanka. He was in the United States, about to go to live in some monastery. But he was for several weeks in Yucca, being one of the teachers on the teaching team, along with Joseph and Jack and whoever else was teaching there. And I had an interview with him in which uh, I, I posed this question. I said, you know, <clears throat> I said, when I'm on retreat like this, I often go to sleep at the regular time, but I get up at two in the morning and I'm wide awake. And I think to myself, well, I'm wide awake. Maybe I should go sit in the hall. And I get up and I get dressed not to wake up my roommates and I creep out of my room. And in Yucca, you have to walk a quarter of a mile to get from some of the bungalows where we stay to get over to the meditation hall. So walk a quarter of a mile down the road, go in the meditation hall, sit down full of wide awake and sit five minutes and feel sleepy. So I think, okay, now I'm going to walk a little bit. Okay, I'll get up a walking practice a little bit. Okay, now I feel awake. Now sit back down, sit back down, five minutes sleeping up bored, down, sleeping, up, down, up, down, up, down, <laughs> for the whole night until it's morning and then people come in. And I said, you know, maybe it doesn't make any sense. Maybe when I wake up tomorrow at two in the morning, I should just stay in bed. He said, no, don't stay in bed. He said, get up and go and sit and walk just as you are. You don't get too sleepy, you stand up, walk a little bit. He said, because in the mo every moment that you wake up, I said, oh, here I am. That's a moment of mindfulness. And he said, doesn't matter how many times you fall asleep, matters how many times you wake up. And he said, every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. So I thought, ah. And I have this view in my mind of a great giant blackboard. You know, erases, you think about eraser and chalk, a great giant chalkboard, all chalked up with scribble. And that scribble is all conditioning, whatever the habits and the thoughts and the views of my life. And every time I'm mindful, I'm erasing some scribble. I think to myself, I don't know two things. I don't know how much scribble I have left to erase on that chalkboard in my mind. And I'm pretty sure that at the same time that I'm erasing scribble, I'm creating new scribble. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm creating faster than I'm erasing. <laughs> But it was tremendously um, empowering to me and inspiring. Every moment of mindfulness erases a moment conditioning. Okay, I could be one scribble away from liberation. I don't know. <laughs> and so we left that retreat, and I did my life. And Usivali, alas, died within a year after that. Um, but he remains in my heart. And uh, with gratitude, because he said that to me. So maybe the last thing to say, just because it brings it to a good end, is um, um, <coughs> I've been telling you since last month, since when I got back from the Kalachakra initiation in uh, Washington, that His Holiness the Dalai Lama 
began that whole week of trainings by saying what you need to have if, you're, if your goal is to really uh, present yourself to these vows, uh, dedicating yourself to a life of commitment to alleviating suffering in the world, the mind that you want to have that's ready to take that vow so it can fulfill those vows is a mind that's permeated with wisdom and a mind that has the attitude of altruism. He said, you need two things. And what I've been thinking about since then is that those two things, I think, are the same thing. That the mind that's filled with wisdom is the mind that has the altruistic attitude. The mind that's filled with wisdom understands that everybody is in this boat. Everybody's a human being. Everybody, however much, uh, however sympathetic I feel about them, however much they appeal to me or they don't appeal to me, is making their way through her or his life the best they can, like I am. And they really would like to be happy. Sometimes people are really making it hard for themselves, but they don't mean to. Everybody's doing the best they can. You look around and you think, wow. And it brings up such compassion for human beings. They're heroic. All of us are in the middle of worrying about somebody or losing someone or dealing with something or losing our own youth or health or vitality or something. It's one long accommodate, I think, for this life. We get our bearings and then the bearings shift. We have to get our bearings again. But it's also an extraordinary opportunity to live a life. It's amazing. I realized when I saw that coyote crossing the road this morning, I got so picked up about it. You know, I was worrying about the, for one thing, I worried about the coyote. What's it crossing Sir Francis Drake Boulevard about, you know? I want to tell it, don't cross the street, you know? There's too much traffic up here. But I'm thinking, Mom, you know, why are they down out of the hills? What does that mean? But, you know, the world is full of amazing things, like coyotes crossing the street and turkeys and uh, new grandchildren and people living long, long lives together against all odds, really. It's hard to live a long, long life with somebody. Uh, and writing operas to commemorate awesome days and taking singing lessons long enough to be able to perform them. It's amazing what human beings do. I always think that, that, that balancing those two things, the compassion that is aroused when I look around and think everybody's in trouble, and uh, the sense of how amazingly glorious it is to be a person in a life, you know? We want so much to have more of it, even we, we, you know, when we're in a hard time. Most people don't want to quit. I want to see who's going to win the World Series this year, you know? <laughs> That's amazing that the same mind that's interested in liberating the world can be interested in who's winning the World Series. We just do all those things. Human beings are amazing. So let's dedicate our practice to the well-being of all beings everywhere.
as it always is. Sometimes when people say at the end of a of a of a sitting or of a retreat, they say, well, "I am now dedicating the merit of my practice." Sounds like if we didn't make an announcement about it, it wouldn't happen. But I'm convinced that it happens as it's unfolding. Don't save up the merit and then give it away. That every bit of our being together here, with an intention to attune and align the mind to peace and kindness and goodwill is in itself, as it's happening, transforming us and through us, transforming the world. May all beings everywhere learn that that spirit and attitude of altruism that's natural to human beings. That's been part of human beings since the beginning of human beings. So that as a species, we've stayed alive. We take care of each other. We take care of our kin. May it broaden so that all beings everywhere recognize that this whole world is kin to each other. May this actually be um, a world of kinship and friendship and goodwill and peace. And may our practice and our transformation be a part of that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.